to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This morning, I want to tell you a tragic story, but first let us discuss Lent. This is, of course, the first Sunday of the 40-day season of fasting, prayer, and penitence that stands between us and our annual remembrance of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Lent is, despite what you may have heard or previously experienced, not the worst season of the church year. This is a time, in fact, for honest reflection, for truth-telling of the most vulnerable kind. When we are reminded that we are sinners in need of a Savior, creatures who are subject to a Creator, and that we are all dead in our trespasses if we do not come alive in Christ Jesus. Lent is this whole season set aside for wrestling with the most pressing of realities for the sake of our souls. Because death is not the end for those who put their trust in Jesus. Resurrection is. So when we acknowledge the truth about our human nature, we're set free from having to live according to any lies that we might tell ourselves. We can be honest with one another and crucially with God about our hopes and our fears, and we can look for redemption from our Lord, because in such redemption is our true hope found. And that's because if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we need not fear death any longer. So Lent is the season when we reckon with the limits of our own ability to overcome those twin powers of sin and death, which brings us, of course, rather nicely to this morning's reading from the book of Genesis. So we read this morning from parts of chapters 2 and 3 of the first book of the Bible, beginning with what some would call the second creation story, although scholars believe it's actually an older version of the narrative that's found in Genesis 1. In chapter 2, the man does not just spring forth at God's command. He is created out of the dust. The God of the universe, like a master potter, gets down in the red mud on his knees to make the first man, the first Adam in Hebrew, only later to become Adam. And God breathes his own breath into his creation's nostrils. So the Hebrew words that are at play here are all a bit clever. The word for ground, Adamah, as well as the root word for the Hebrew word for red. So this creation is an intimate, close thing that God does in the dust. He doesn't simply snap his fingers. He puts in effort. As the prophet Isaiah says later, God is the potter. Humanity is the clay. And creation, therefore, is the work of an artisan in close relationship with the materials he is working with. Any of you who have ever made a piece of pottery understand the mess that is required. God gets his hands dirty 
to do this work. And after forming the man out of the dust of the earth, God the potter shows himself to be a gardener as well. He plants the Garden of Eden and places the man there just so. There are trees of every kind in the garden. And eventually, God will also create a woman called Eve to join Adam, to share a life of mutual service and equity, delighting in the gardener's work and sharing in the cultivation of God's good creation. This garden exists in a perfect state of grace. It's a place where there is balance and harmony, where God's will is realized in all its beauty. And that will, according to Genesis, is quite clear. The destiny of human beings as part of the creation is to live in God's world with God's other creatures on God's terms. That destiny, of course, remains ours as human partners with God in the restoration of all things. And in that spirit of partnership, God gives the man and the woman three things that will facilitate their thriving and promote harmony within the creation. First, God gives them a vocation. He gives them permission. And finally, God gives them one prohibition. So first, the vocation. In Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the very simple task that Adam is given to do before Eve's creation, but that is later extended to her as well. They are to live in the garden and keep it in accordance with God's design. Secondly, the two are given permission to eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden that they wish, with one exception. They must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it will lead inevitably to death. So God has given them something to do. He has provided for their physical needs. And in return, there is just one thing that they must not do. So Adam and Eve are very happy nudists in God's garden, untroubled by anything. They don't even know that they're naked. And this one prohibition doesn't seem so impossible to keep, but as we'll see, it turns out to be just too much for the first humans to manage. Now, sometimes, of course, we're frustrated that God created us this way, or annoyed that God did not anticipate that human beings would be the selfish and willful creatures that we are. We resent God for creating the circumstances under which our free will leads us astray. But God's planting of this garden and the guidelines that come with it are not an act of divine recklessness any more than the whole creation itself. Because God created out of an overflow of love from the relationship that exists between the members of the Trinity. So creation itself is good. And God sets the boundaries within the goodness of that creation because he didn't design us to live as automatons operating only according to a set of pre-programmed instructions. We have been given free will as a gift so that we can choose either to submit ourselves to God's rule or else to try to find some other way of living in the world. 
But this temptation of Eve and Adam often causes frustration to bubble up inside of us. Why did God let it happen this way? Did God not know how weak we are? And for that reason, we often fixate on the serpent, this deceiver who sidles up next to Eve to whisper his slippery suggestions in her ear. Why would God create such a being in the first place? And how does this creature find its way into God's garden if it's such a good thing? Is the snake meant to stand in for Satan or some other sort of evil character? And I want to say this morning, if the thing you find most interesting about this story is the snake, you might be in a bit of trouble already. <laughs> because the snake has historically been overanalyzed. Just like the villain in any good story, he gets most of the attention because he has the interesting lines. But as a character in this story, the snake serves only one important purpose. He moves the action forward, but he also introduces theological talk of the very worst kind. So this is a new mode of speech within Genesis. Talk about God. Talk that seeks to analyze and objectify the divine. And as we learn, such talk can be very deadly when it's separated from questions of real faithfulness. Because God is discussed in the third person. This is speech not directed towards God or with God, but speech about God. The snake speaks knowingly and critically of the Lord and becomes the first character in Scripture, but not the last, to practice theology in the place where obedience should be. This is a grave error often repeated. When we start to talk about God as an object, when we treat God's commandments as obstacles to overcome, when we set the word of God up as something to be dealt with analytically, we're beginning to let our intellect lead us to avoidance and not faithfulness. Now, what the snake does is, of course, quite clever, befitting his status as the craftiest of the beasts. He begins by purposefully misquoting the prohibition. Because, of course, God didn't tell Adam and Eve they could not eat from any of the trees, but just the one. The instructions are twisted just enough that the distortion sets up new horizons, alternatives to what God had said originally. And what that does is it opens the possibility for consideration that God might not know best after all. Between Eve and the snake, now the givenness of God's rules is up for discussion. God's words are now a barrier to be removed rather than a safe space in which to dwell securely. And once we're able to consider that the ground we stand on itself could be uncertain, suddenly everything else is up for grabs. What if God cannot be relied on? Up is down, black is white, cats and dogs living together, chaos in the streets. And now on those twisted terms of the argument, the story moves forward to a disappointing conclusion. You perhaps know the rest. Eve eats the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she shares some with Adam, and he eats it as well. 
Despite what you might have been led to believe, they're both at fault. Nobody is more at fault than anybody else. And suddenly their eyes are opened and they become aware that they are naked. And in their shame, they cover themselves and hide, knowing that they have violated the one thing that God told them they should not do and hoping to avoid the Lord as he walks in the garden. It's crucial, I think, to note in the the next verse that we did not read this morning, that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God is not walking in the garden to sneak up on Adam and Eve and see what mischief they have gotten up to and discover their sin. God, who is the potter, God, who is the gardener, simply delights in the beauty of his own creation. He enjoys it. God enjoys the creation just for the pleasure of doing so. But this choice that Eve and Adam have made, the choice to violate the boundaries of God's goodness and step out of the relationship of trust, cannot be undone with a snap of the fingers. This is the tragic thing about Adam and Eve's story. Their story is our story. Our lives are bound up with their choices. We would not have made better decisions in the same position. We would have fallen just as quickly under the same circumstances. We may not have been there in the garden, in the flesh, but we have all been there in our hearts. We desire knowledge and certainty instead of trust and grace, not just them, but we. We desire to be the masters of our own fate. We desire to be like God, and we choose to violate God's prohibitions, throwing away our true vocation and ignoring God's design and permission for the sake of gratifying our own desires. And when we have gained the knowledge that we seek, when innocence is lost, we discover that we have learned more than we were prepared to know. And in the aftermath of that fateful misstep, there is nowhere that we can go to hide from God. We may have thought we knew what we were doing, but we had no idea at all. Likewise, the serpent believed that God's instruction was just a rule, the sort of thing that can be ignored or broken with minimal consequence. But the serpent misunderstands the passion of the gardener for his creation. And the consequences are dire, not because God is some kind of divine rule giver who believes in the importance of his own rules, but because God's design. God's intention for the whole creation cannot just be sidestepped and avoided. And even if the rules can be broken, the God who sets them cannot be so easily hidden from. And that's because God has not given up on his creation. God is still engaged. He still checks in. He wants to make sure that the creation is thriving. He walks in the garden for the pleasure of enjoying it for its own sake. And he will be sure that the creation can thrive, even if it means disciplining the creatures that he made on his hands and knees out of the dust and the mud. In stark contrast, where our primordial parents were unable to trust God and resist temptation, Jesus, thankfully, 
was unable to be led astray from God's purpose. Jesus was focused and committed. He trusted absolutely, even to the point of suffering and death. He sees the boundaries that are set and receives those prohibitions as guidelines to be appreciated, not overcome. The temptation that our Lord faces in the desert is truly tempting. You'll recall that Satan comes to him and gives him the desires of his heart. But Christ is not swayed because we must be saved. And for us to be redeemed, God must show himself to be faithful in our place where we are unable to go. And because of the faithfulness of Jesus, you and I become salt and light. And the foolishness of Adam and Eve can be undone. What is urged for us as readers of this story of Eve and Adam and their failure to obey is trust. If we place our trust in God, we will acknowledge and accept that there are limitations to our powers and that they exist oftentimes for our own good. And that God, our Heavenly Father, has not set those boundaries at random or out of capriciousness. We can, of course, do whatever we like. We can choose to ignore all limits and laws and live as recklessly as we please. But when we do so, there may be unforeseen consequences. That means that when we are greedy for our own gain, when we ignore the suffering of the poor and the needy, when we assume that we know best, when we look down on others from our lofty perches of self-righteous judgment, we may not experience immediate punishment. But that does not mean that we escape God's notice. The man and the woman in the garden seek to escape their fears by circumventing the rule of God, by doing the one thing that they're told they must not do. Overcoming God in that way is often thought of as a way to end our anxiety, as if by eliminating the presence of the divine gaze, we will finally be free to actualize our best selves. But this story makes it clear that God is the one who calls, who prohibits and permits, and God alone gives us a vocation and a purpose. And that is ultimately the cure for all of our anxious fears. Finding that solid ground of God's loving purpose for each of us to stand on. Failure to trust God leads only to death. So we must find some way in this season of Lent to turn from the temptation of self-secured autonomy and place ourselves at the mercy of the potter and the gardener who has created with such loving purpose and set us in the world out of an abundance of his love. Amen.